run WEC number 11, taking a look at a basic introduction to what's known as the aseity of God. But before we start, we must always keep this in mind when we are studying the nature and the character of who God is. Who God is in his nature will never be fully understood by his creation. Referring to us, we're never going to understand who God is in his entirety. Even when we are in heaven, because God is infinite and we are finite and we're always going to be finite and limited, even in our glorified state. It is impossible for a finite mind to have an exhaustive understanding of an infinite God. We do not have this ability to comprehend God in his entirety. This being said, we must be fearlessly anthropomorphic when we read the Bible. Meaning, when we read the Bible, believe it, approach it, understand it, when we pray, communicate, memorize, think, meditate, trust, and comprehend God, we are to do so just like he reveals himself to us in Scripture. God uses terms to describe himself so we can understand him. Calvin refers to this as God speaking to us in baby talk. Otherwise, we being finite would never be able to understand an infinite God. So this subject of the aseity of God, it causes frustration and it may cause people to step away from scripture because after learning about this in God's character, they come to realize that God may not be who they thought he was from Scripture. So again, we must be fearlessly anthropomorphic, meaning we must use the language that Scripture uses in order to be able to understand and comprehend who God is. So getting into the aseity of God, aseity comes from the Latin phrase, what's the ase? Or the Greek phrase autotheos. Autotheos in Greek means self-God. So Exodus 3, verse 1 through 2, we see the concept of God's aseity in the illustration that's given to us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. So what is it in this account that highlights the aseity of God and why? And the answer is, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. The bush was the fuel source, but the fire was not dependent on the bush to continue to burn. The fire was independent of the bush. It did not need the bush in order to burn. So the term, the term aseity comes from the Latin phrase ase, meaning from or by oneself. God has no needs at all, and that's exactly what 
the burning bush is showing us. Acts 17, 24 through 25, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. So God's attributes are not abstract qualities. God's attributes and his character are not separate like they are with us. They are identical to God himself. God's infinity, his eternality, his unchangeability are as much of God as his wisdom, holiness, justice, and goodness. There are no separate parts of God in which he switches back and forth. What God is and what he does are the same. Now, that's not true for us. This is where we get confused when we look at ourselves and then project how we function back on God. God is not like human beings. Our essence is what we are by nature. Our existence is that we are, that we exist, that what we do. God's attributes are not dependent upon his essence. God simply is that act of existence by which he is. Human beings are different. Though we are created in God's image, in our essence, our existence, what we do, is separate. With God, this isn't the case. It's called the doctrine of divine simplicity. I'm not going to get into it anymore here just to state what it is and that it's true about God, but we are not the same way God is. And this is the problem that we get to. So in Acts 17, Paul is clearly telling us that God is not dependent upon anything. He's self-contained, self-sufficient. We take a look now at what's known as the creature-creator distinction. God is separate from us. God is separate from his creation. He reveals himself to us through nature, through special revelation, referring to his word, and through the person of Jesus Christ. But God is separate from us. What we like to think of God is like on a chain. God is the top link of the chain. We are the bottom link of the chain, but yet we are both connected to the same chain. This is false thinking. God is separate from us. We reflect his image. We do not work in his image as if he is the top of the ring and we are the bottom of the ring, both consisting and existing on the same chain. We don't. Us as image bearers of God are separate from God. This is what's known as analogical predication. Similar, not identical to in a reflective sense. And we don't measure this by human standards at all. What we like to think about when we relate ourselves to God is what's called as univocal predication, like that chain. We are on the same chain as God. But if this is true, if God is the top link and we are the bottom link, we would be identical to God's character just in a lesser sense. But that's not how it is. God is completely separate from us. We reflect his image, 
We are not identical to his image, just lesser, which means God in his essence is most absolute. God alone is the sufficient reason for his own existence, his own essence, and his own attributes. He does not possess his perfections by relating to anything or anyone other than himself. So it's impossible for God to be on the same chain that we are. He's completely separate. This is where we get into theology of these two terms, archetype and ectype. Archetype theology is that which exists in the mind of God. It is necessarily hidden from and incommunicable to us as creatures, just as God's immensity or his holiness as it exists in God is incommunicable to us. So archetype theology, all it is, is who God is in his essence. And because he is infinite, he cannot communicate that to a finite mind, which is why when we read scripture, he uses words and terms. He uses examples and phrases about himself that may appear to be very human-like, but again, it's not univocal. We are not on the same chain as God, just in a lesser sense. He's communicating to us so we can understand him. So archetype theology is that what exists in the mind of God. Ectypal theology is the accommodated theology. It's what we have in scripture. It's what Calvin would refer to as baby talk. What God uses, the words he uses to communicate about himself to us so we can understand. We as creatures have no comprehension of archetype theology. We only know that it exists. But again, we can't understand an infinite God. So he has to talk down to our level. So what does it mean that God is immutable? Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Which means God is what's referred to as pure actuality, meaning what actually exists. God is infinite in all things. God is 100% God at all times, which means there is no potentiality within God, meaning there is no possibility. There is no contingency. There are no greater or lesser things or possibilities. There's a song that says there is no shadow of turning within the God doesn't change. He doesn't look left and then look right. He doesn't look up and then have to look down. God is purely himself at all times. There is no contingency. There's no possibility. There's no potential. There's no greater or lesser degree within him. So the question is, can there ever be a time where God is in transit or he's changing or he's morphing? And, no, he can't. God in his very essence and nature is 100% God at all times. That's why, again, in Malachi 3.6, it says, for I, the Lord, do not change. There is no change in God. He is 100% God at all times. This is something that, though we get the concept, we can't picture this. What we end up doing is, because we hear this, we think we turn God into a statue. That God is stagnant because we move. But if something doesn't move, that means it has to be stationary. That's completely opposite of what God is. We are more stationary than God because God is purely himself, pure infinity at all times. We might think of that and project onto God that he is stoic like a statue, but the opposite is true. 
He's 100% affinity at all times, something that we have no idea how to even comprehend. So God's lordship and his sovereignty. The difference between being purely sovereign and mostly sovereign is what? And this is going to be an important concept to nail down as we go forward later on in understanding the problem of evil and taking a look at Arminianism and Molinism and open theism. The difference between being purely sovereign and mostly sovereign is infinite. Meaning, if God is mostly sovereign, that means he's limited. If God is purely sovereign, that means he's infinite. If we limit God in the smallest way possible, what we have done is taken God out of his infinity and put him into a finite mold. And that is impossible. He would be denying himself. So how does this affect how God governs the universe? How does this affect how things come into existence? Is God ever passive? How exactly does God see the future? Does he foresee what will happen and then he passively responds? Does he not know what people will do until they do it? So salvation, how are people saved? By foresight? By foreseeing faith? By allowing people to exercise their libertarian free will, which God cannot override? So this is the underlying reason why so many scholars reject the divine simplicity of God, that God is most absolute. And we see this in the three categories here. Actually, four. We see this in the Arminian camp, the Molinism camp, in the open theism camp, where the reformed camp would be the fourth camp, but we see God as most absolute. The other three, in some way, shape, or form, deny his sovereignty, but then try to make up for that by saying he is more loving, or he is a perfect gentleman, or he's even more sovereign because he does not have to pre-program someone to get his results. But any way you look at it, Arminianism, Molinism, and open theism opens the door for risk, where God is at risk now because he cannot violate human and uh, human free will. So human action, question, if God is sovereign over all, how can humanity make free choices? And this is what we're going to get into later on, the difference between divine and human causality, how God creates something to come to pass and how we cause something come to pass. We're going to get into what's known as compatibility or concurrence versus middle knowledge or libertarian free will or in open theism where God does not know the future because if God did know the future, all of our actions would be set and they would have to happen the way God foresees it. So in order for humanity to be free, God cannot know the future in its entirety. So this leads us to different type of questions. We'll get into these later on. Why pray? Prayer is affected hugely by how we understand God and his sovereignty. 
So as the Arminian would see it, if the Calvinist position of God is true, then why pray? Because everything has already been decreed before the foundation of the world. The open theist would view prayer as, well, if God already foresees what we're going to do, as the Arminian says, then why pray? Because everything has to happen the way God foresees, according to humanitarian free will. And the Calvinist would say, in response to the open theist in the Arminian, well, if Arminianism and open theism is true, why pray? Because God can't even violate your free will, and God doesn't even know what the future holds. So therefore, since he's not most absolute, why pray to a God who's not sovereign? So all of these questions, we'll take a look. We're going to be getting into the problem of evil coming up next, taking a look at Calvinism, Arminianism, open theism, and Molinism, and also not just the theological problem of evil or the logical problem of evil, but also the emotional problem of evil, how we experience evil, how we handle evil, and how the Lord uses evil to conform us to the image of his Son.